This morning, I would like to introduce you to a man named John Patton. Uh, some of you know this man. I've spoken about him before, but maybe it has been a while since you have uh, learned about John Patton. I think I'm in the monitors, and if I wasn't, that would make me happy. That'd be great. Thank you. Uh, John Patton was born near Dumfries, Scotland in, on May 24th, 1824. Uh, he was, uh, so uh, what, almost 200 years ago. He was one of 11 children. On April 16th, 1853, he left Scotland with his wife, Mary. He was about 30. He left for Scotland with his wife, Mary, for the New Hebrides Islands. Uh, the New Hebrides Islands, today we call them Vanuatu, this chain of islands. It's part of the, it's in the South Seas. And they were among the first missionaries ever to go to the New Hebrides Islands. The first missionaries to actually go went in 1839, John Williams and James Harris. They got off the boat, rowed to shore, the ship that they'd come on, they were rowed to shore, and within minutes of stepping foot on the island, uh, they were butchered and eaten by cannibals. Uh, the next group that came to one of these islands lasted seven months before they uh, had to leave, couldn't stand it anymore. Uh, there was, uh, among these chain of islands, there was some fruitful work on one of the islands, uh, but uh, uh, John and his wife Mary, the Pattons, went to an un, uh, a, a, a nation, an island, sorry, an island that um, no one, no Christian worker had ever lived. It was the island of Tana. It was a difficult four years that John Patton spent there. Within the first year, both his wife and the son that she gave birth to on the trip over died from some sort of tropical fever. He buried them himself in the sand there on that island. Then, um, uh, well, they were in constant danger. He was in constant danger from the islanders. They were cannibals. They um, practiced infanticide and widow sacrifice, um, he uh, lived, well, they, sorry, lived in constant fear of the spirits, and the only way to appease the spirits was through blood and violence. They had no notion that there was a God of mercy and a God of grace. And John Patton actually spent most of his life in um, uh, the four years that he spent there following the death of his wife, most of his life in fear of being hurt um, uh, or under threat of being in danger by these islanders. His grief was pretty severe. You can imagine he had no one to comfort him, and he, he writes in his autobiography that he was pretty sure he was going to lose his mind from the grief. He himself caught some of the same fever, some of the same diseases that his wife and his son had. Um, he was at one point in time trying to build a house that was higher up the mountains and away from the low valleys. He's hoping that the uh, fresher air up in the mountains would provide some um, better ventilation and would help him in his uh, illnesses. Uh, while he was trying to build this house, he's climbing the mountain, taking supplies up the hill to his new homestead, and uh, he collapsed one day from his own fever and laid there for several days uh, before he finally recovered. As I said, they, uh, the, the villagers, the islanders, the tribes there often threatened his life. He had a little dog with him. I think it was a Scottish terrier. That would make sense. He was from Scotland. The dog's name was Clutha. 
And uh, Clutha, uh, uh, John Patton would go to bed with his clothes on, fully dressed, because uh, occasionally in the middle of the night, Clutha would start barking, and that was a signal that there were some uh, tribes people coming to attack him. He would wake up, grab Clutha, and run into the jungle to hide from those who were coming. One morning, he woke up. His house was surrounded by armed men. Clutha apparently had uh, fallen asleep on the job. I'm not sure. And uh, 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 so John Patton saw these armed men, prayed, and opened the door, and the man who answered the door said, I am here to kill you. It's my job. And John Patton said to him, I have been nothing but kind to all of you, and you have treated me terribly. And that changed their mind. They repented and didn't kill him that day. One day, a chief uh, had a loaded musket travel them around all day as he was going about his business and uh, would occasionally just point it at John Patton just for the fun of it to, to scare him, to threaten him. Uh, eventually, he, he lived there for four years under those conditions. Eventually, he left. He traveled around the world for a little while. He remarried, and he moved back to the New Hebrides. This time, he didn't go to that same island. He moved to another island in Niwa, a little bit uh, a far, uh, further away where he and his wife spent 40 years faithfully serving Jesus and saw hundreds, if not thousands, of people become followers of Jesus. Now, you should ask yourself this question about John Patton, and the question you should ask is, why did he stay? What sustained him in this? Why, why didn't he go home? Why did he come back? And one of the answers to that question is that Patton had a praying father. Let me read to you a little bit from his autobiography. You can buy versions of his autobiography still to this day. It's worth, it would be worth reading. But listen to what he wrote about his childhood and listening to his father pray. He said, How much my father's prayers at this time impressed me, I can never explain, nor could any stranger understand. When on his knees and all of us kneeling around him in, in family worship, he poured out his whole soul with tears for the conversion of the heathen world to the service of Jesus, and he prayed for every personal and domestic need, we all felt as if in the presence of the living Savior and learned to know and love him as our divine friend. What would your children know about Jesus if all they knew about him was what they learned from listening to you pray? Hmm. Here's, here's something else he wrote. Um, he was writing about times that he um, did have doubts and he struggled uh, in his faith. You can imagine why. He, he wrote this. Though everything else in religion were by some unthinkable catastrophe to be swept out of memory, were blotted from my understanding, if I couldn't remember anything that I'd ever learned about the Bible, about Jesus, he says, my soul would wander back to those early scenes and shut itself up once again in that sanctuary closet. Um, in, they read the King James uh, version of the Bible in the Patton home, and they had a room uh, next to the kitchen uh, that they called the closet, this little small room, the closet, and that's where they would pray in the closet. Uh, he says, if, if I forget everything, my soul would wander back to those early scenes and shut itself up once again in that sanctuary uh, closet. And hearing still the echoes of my father's cries to God, my soul would hurl back all doubt with the victorious appeal, he walked with God, why may not I? John Patton had a praying father. 
My subject for today, I want to talk to you about the promise and the power of a praying father. This is a topic, not a specific passage. Those of you who have been around here for a long time know that for the 48 years of our church's history, we walk through books of the Bible. That's what we do. Uh, but in this in, in between time, uh, when we finish Matthew, we're going to start another book study sometime soon. Uh, we're, we're considering various topics that press us, and my goal today is I want to encourage the fathers and the grandfathers to pray faithfully and fervently for their sons and daughters, their grandsons and granddaughters. Uh, as you can imagine, I have attended uh, uh, in my ministry a number of funerals, and I've gotten to hear a lot of eulogies. I hear sons and daughters talk about their uh, parents. And it's interesting to me, maybe it's my limited experience, I don't know, but when, when often they talk about dads, they, they praise dads, grieving people do, for their father's hard work and sacrifices, sometimes their sense of humor or their, their faithfulness. My dad was always at my football games, something like that. It's much more common to hear sons and daughters say about their mothers, I had a praying mother than it is for either of them to say, I had a praying father. Why is that? I'm grateful. I am grateful for um, hardworking, sacrificial fathers. We need hardworking, sacrificial fathers. We need fathers who tell dad jokes, okay? We need men like that. And I'm grateful for men like that in our congregation. Um, but I want to encourage you this morning to be a praying father, now, I recognize that when we talk about prayer, this is a subject that easily provokes people to uh, feel guilty. Is there anybody in the room who feels like they pray enough? Anybody want to volunteer? Yeah, I got this one down, preacher. I'm good. Anybody? I've been thinking about that, about why, why is it that so many of us followers of Jesus just feel this pretty consistent low level of, of guilt, especially when we bring up topics like prayer. Prayer is one of them. It's like, it's like we all have spiritual sunburn, this low-level guilt, and, and it hurts a little bit all the time, but when somebody brings up topics like this, like prayer, it's like slapping that red-hot skin, and we all go, oh, yes, you're right, I'm sorry. Uh, and the solution that we often think of when, when we hear uh, appeals like this is, is the solution we tell ourselves, do better. Come on, man, do better. You gotta do better at this. You know better, you can do better. I have, I think, maybe a better model for you in these moments. Rather than do better, I think I'll phrase it this way. I would encourage you to know deeply. K-N-O-W, know deeply. We talk a lot about what we do and how to apply what we know, but I think all of us would benefit from focusing more on how deeply the truths, uh, how deep the truths are that we sing and, and celebrate, in particular when it comes to the abundant, merciful, lavish grace of God. That's what, what Robert Murray McShane is after, I think, a little bit, and what he said, uh, uh, this off-quoted line from the preacher who lived in the 1800s. He died before he was 31, I think. But here's something he said, Robert Murray McShane. He said, learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. I'll translate that, right? For every do better, 
uh, take 10 no deeplies. For every, do, uh, for every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. He's altogether lovely. Such infinite majesty and yet such meekness and grace and all for sinners, even the chief of sinners. Live much in the smiles of God. Bask in his beams. Feel his all-seeing eyes settled on you in love and repose in his almighty arms. Brothers and sisters, we believe that Jesus died for sinners. And one of the sins he died for even was prayerlessness. So uh, mature followers of Jesus are more shaped by the abundance of God's grace and his mercy, his kindness to us, than they are by their own failures. They have greater joy in what God has done for us than uh, grief over what we have done. I say that because I want you to have this hope. I want to talk about prayer this morning in a way that I want you to move forward, move forward as we talk about this with the excitement of pulling up to Rita's for ice cream on a hot winter night than, than, the, than the despair you feel on Monday when you clock in after vacation, right? I don't want you to pray like you're clocking in on Monday morning after your week at the beach, I want you to pray with the the joy of pulling up to Rita's on a hot summer night. Well, my approach, here's what I want to do. I want to talk about two things. One, we're going to talk about why fathers pray, and then we're going to talk about how fathers pray. Why fathers pray and how fathers pray. I have two, uh, three reasons why fathers pray. Here's number one. Prayer is an essential part of spiritual leadership. Prayer is an essential part of spiritual leadership. I'm going to read several passages of Scripture. I'm going to breeze through them, uh, and I want you to, uh, to detect the theme of these passages of Scripture. We'll start in the book of Exodus. This is in the book of Exodus. Um, God is meeting with Moses on Mount Sinai. The people down in the valley have made a golden calf and have started worshiping it, and look what happens. Exodus 32, 11, and 12. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God, Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Then verse 30, the next day Moses said to the people, you have committed a great sin, but now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold, but now please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. Uh, here's what Samuel said, Samuel the prophet. He said in 1 Samuel 12, 23, as for me to the people, Far be it for me that I should sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you, and I will teach you the way that is good and right. Uh, Here's what the Bible says about Job. Job, it says, his sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, Perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This is Job's regular custom. Daniel, the prophet, says this, Now our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. For your sake, Lord, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, our God, and hear. Open our eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. 
We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act. For your sake, my God, do not delay because your city and your people bear your name. Here's what Jesus said on the night of the Last Supper. He said, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. This is what Paul said to the Ephesians. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. He said to the Philippians, I thank my God every time I remember you and all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And then he said, we always thank God to the Philippians, Thessalonians. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. See the theme? <laughs> These men... Uh, This is just a sample. You should know that this is just a sample. Moses, Samuel, Job, Daniel, Jesus, Paul, praying, praying, praying for those entrusted into their care. You you know this. You should uh, probably pick this up. All of them, except for Job, were, were not fathers in that sense in which they prayed. They were prophets and apostles and even our, our Lord himself. That's why... And we're talking to fathers today, but almost anybody with spiritual leadership should take this up. This is why our elders pray. Uh, the month of July and our elders meeting is prayer month. We will spend our entire meeting, virtually all of it, praying for the congregation. Um, after the service, Joe is going to be at the front. He would love to pray with you this morning, as is our usual custom. Call down. Do you call down heaven for the people who are in your Bible study? They come to your house Uh, for those eight weeks, and and you're leading them, call down heaven for them or for your pyro small group, anyone entrusted into your care. Now, today we are talking, though, about fathers and the power of a, a praying father. What would it look like, men, for you to pray like Samuel, to say to your children, far be it for me to sin against the Lord by not praying for you? Or to, like the Lord Jesus, in anticipation of that time, you drop them off at college, you send them off into the military, and you say, this is going to be a period of sifting, but I have prayed for you. I am praying for you that your faith will not fail and that you will turn faithfully in following God. Or like Job, crying out to God for his forgiveness for your children. You know when your children break the rules or do something heinous, you get angry get angry? Do you, ever, do you ever also at the same time have concern for their souls before God? They have not just broken your rules. More grievously, they have violated his rules and they must face him. Will you cry out to your children for them? A prayer is a central part of spiritual leadership. Reason number two, why men pray. A healthy church is pr- filled with praying men. A healthy church is filled with praying men. Take your Bibles and turn to me to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2 is where I want to direct your attention this morning. We're going to look at um, 
what Paul says these instructions. I want to eventually get to verse 8, but we're going to start in verse 1. 1 Timothy is a letter to Timothy, a personal letter to Timothy, but it also, like chapter 3 tells us, is a manual for how churches are to function. Uh, it doesn't have everything, but it has a lot of help for how churches are to function. And in 1 Timothy 2, here's a verse 1. Here are Paul's priorities. Number, verse 1, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercessions, that should be plural, and thanksgiving be made for all people. First of all, prayer. And then he uses these three words, um, prayers, petitions, requests, uh, and um, intercessions. Notice three overlapping words that are comprehensive and they're plural. Paul wants you to pray in every way you can think of for all people, and he wants you to stick at it, stay at it, because they're, they're plurals. Lots of prayers for lots of people, comprehensively, first of all. And then in verse 2, he mentions a specific group of people that he wants you to pray for. Verse 2, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceable and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Now, why does he want him to pray for kings? He wants him to pray for kings and those in authority because, well, he does want them to pray comprehensively. Don't forget anybody. Pray for everybody. Start at the top and work your way down. Pray for everybody, all people, even kings. Don't leave them out. And I think the second reason he mentions kings and all those in authority here is because he knows that kings and those in authority have special responsibility before God to bring about a peaceable and justice, just society. That's their job, to bring about peace and justice in society. And the reason that that's good is because uh, peaceful and just societies make excellent platforms for spreading the good news about Jesus. So that's what he's after here. You can see that in verse 3 uh, when Paul says, this is good. Now, what's the this that's good? I think the this is referring back to the verse 1, prayer for all people. Pray for all people, kings and those in authority. This is good. It's good to pray for all people. And notice his, how he elaborates in this. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time. And for this purpose, I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, and a true and faithful teacher of the Gentiles. First of all, prayer for all people. Why? Because God wants all people to be saved. Your prayers should be as broad and as big as the heart of God for all people. God wants all people to be saved, and there's only one way to be saved. It's through Jesus, the mediator. And the, the, he is the one who offered himself as a ransom for all. And God sent out apostles and prophets so that all people could hear about him. Pray as broad as God's heart for all people. And the missions committee is trying to help us. They got some plans in the works to help us broaden our prayers. Pray as broadly as the heart of God for all people. Now, I want to pause for just a minute because I hope this passage maybe makes you think about you. 
because you're included in this all, aren't you? If all really means all, that means you too, you included. God wants you to be saved. Saved from what? Saved from his wrath. His wrath because all of us are rebels against God's order, God's commands. We're sinners and thus deserving of God's righteous wrath. And we need to be saved from God's righteous wrath. And isn't this interesting? It says, at the same time, we know this about God. He is righteously angry with us because of the ways that we have disobeyed God. We are by nature objects of his wrath, Paul says in Ephesians. But at the same time, he wants us to be saved from his own wrath. Those two, two impulses. Um, parents can understand this, I'm sure, right? Don't you have dual impulses at times with your kids? You love them, but you want to kill them sometimes. Don't, don't raise your hands, okay? Right? Okay, they, they break the rules and there are consequences and you have, to, you have to suffer the consequences of breaking the rules, but sometimes it, even that is painful for everybody. I told you a couple of weeks ago about the sled that I got for Christmas. What I did not tell you about was that my parents had purchased that sled for me to get as a Christmas present the year before. They bought it in December one year, and they were going to give it to me for Christmas. But early that season in December, early before Christmas in December, it snowed enough in western New York, and I went sledding with friends of mine, and J.J. Uh, Betts was there, and J.J. Betts and I got into a fight, and he swung his sled at my face and knocked out one of my teeth. So I went home. I was in trouble. I was in trouble. You were fighting. That's unacceptable. Consequences. We bought you a sled for Christmas. You're not getting it. That green Incredible Hulk sled was stored in my grandma's attic under one of the, one of the guest beds for an entire year because I was not allowed as a consequence of my a fighting behavior not to have the sled. <laughs> this will make you sad. A couple times during the summer, I went up and visited my sled under, the, <laughs> under my grandma's attic just to look at it, just to look at it. I was not given the sled for Christmas, and I was not allowed to go sledding for the rest of that season either. A poor kid in western New York, he can't sled. It's awful. You feel bad for me, don't you? It was just, it was the right consequences for my actions, and it was painful justice, and my parents would have been happy to relieve me of it if I weren't such a fighter, right? You know what this is like, right? Righteous judgment and desire to save in an infinite more way. This is the way we stand before God. God wants you to be saved, and he sent his son to pay the price that we owed God. That's why the word ransom is here in this text. Jesus paid the penalty for our sins so that in him we might find forgiveness and life. There's only one way to be reconciled to God. It's because Jesus died and paid the penalty, our sufficient sacrifice. Uh, the Bible invites us to turn and trust in him and find forgiveness and life in his name. Jesus who died for us and rose again and ascended to heaven. It's for you. God wants you to be saved. 
Our congregation is a, a, a proclaiming community. You know, he sent out, he, this is what he did, and then he sent out apostles and prophets to tell people about it. And in his providence, he formed this church so that we could tell you, somebody in this congregation paid for you to sit in that chair this morning so that you can hear this good news that God wants you to be saved. Jesus Christ, our mediator, the one who paid the penalty for our sins. You're in this all. You're in this all. Won't you turn and trust in him? Now, now Paul is after this. The church is a proclaiming community. That's true. But before that, we're a praying community. In particular, he's thinking about men. Verse 8. Therefore, I want the men everywhere to pray lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. Now that word men there is not the word for mankind, the generic word for mankind. It's the word for men, male men. God, Paul says, I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands. We'll talk about that in a, in a few minutes. And then he says, without anger or disputing. Why does he say without anger or disputing? Well, that's because unity is important. The unity in the church is important. But I, I think that Paul here is touching on why prayer can be such a challenge. This is a challenge for all of us, but I, I can understand why men find it so hard to pray. Paul's touching on it here. Prayer sometimes feels so very passive, and, and, and we guys, sometimes we have this inclination towards action, towards doing things. Let's get up and fix this. Let's say something. Let's argue about something, let's act, let's speak. If we have to, let's argue and fight, but let's do something to fix this problem. We gotta do something. And Paul here is warning us, warning us, you, if you, when you jump into things without, first of all, prayer, you think you're ahead, but actually you're already behind. First of all, prayer. It's baseball season, you know this, most of you that a runner, when he runs around the bases, has to touch every base. And if you miss a base, oh, you better know that the officials are watching and your opponents are watching because if you miss a base, they could tag you out. They could throw you out. You have to touch all of the bases. And brothers and sisters, for followers of Jesus, prayer is always first base. First of all, first of all, prayer for all people, men, Prayer for all people. A healthy church is filled with praying men. This is how churches change the world. This is how fathers change their families. Reason number three uh, why um, uh, men, fathers pray. Prayer is God's appointed means for meeting needs. Prayer is God's appointed means for meeting needs. So I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to James chapter 4. James chapter 4. You'll turn right in your Bibles from 1 Timothy. You'll find the little book of James right after the book of Hebrews. Um, if, you find the, if you're in the book of Revelation or the book of Concordance, turn left. And uh, you'll find James chapter 4. And it's interesting, while you're turning there, let me tell you that James starts by talking in this prayer passage that he's going to write about fights and quarrels too, What's on the apostles' minds that they can't talk about prayer without talking about arguing? Why is that, one wonders. This is a good question. Here's an overstatement for you. 
I think based on what James and Paul both write about prayer, fighting people rarely pray and praying people rarely fight. Think that's true? You probably can think of an exception. How about it? Fighting people rarely pray and praying people rarely fight. Hmm, that's worth pondering. But look what James says here. He says, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. Oh, there it is. You do not have because you do not ask God. How about we change it a little bit? Paraphrase. Your children do not have because you do not ask God. Verse three, when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your um, pleasure. You do not have because you do not ask God. Now, this is a passage that puzzles us a little bit. It puzzles us because we wonder about what James is saying about the sovereignty of God. There are things that don't happen because we don't pray. Is that what James is saying? What about the sovereignty of God? Well, remember, when you think about the sovereignty of God, we're talking not just about the ends, what happens. We're also talking about the means. God ordained prayer as the means by which he fulfills his purposes. And James is telling the truth. He's speaking rightly to us. You do not have, this is a real scenario, you do not have because you do not ask. Your children do not have because they do not ask. You do not ask. Well, this also puzzles us. We think about unanswered prayer. Unanswered prayer. Unanswered prayer can be painful and challenging. How should we think about it? Well, this is not a sermon on unanswered prayer. We could talk about that at length sometime. Just two quick things to note here. Sometimes prayer goes unanswered because we have a prayer problem, a prayer problem. Look at verse three. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. Oh, the Bible warns us about why we pray for things and it warns us about what we pray for too. Some, I, feel, I feel like I have so much room to grow in how I pray. Uh, Matthew 7, look at what Jesus said about Matthew 7, 9 through 11. He's talking there about prayer. Which of you, he says, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Ha! Huh. According to Jesus, fathers should understand how prayer works because you understand about needy children who ask you things. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So the sons ask for bread, and, uh, God, and the Father gives bread. Sometimes I read this verse, and I think to myself, Ugh, I think in my life sometimes I pray for stone, stones and snakes and not bread and fish. My prayer list is off. Mm, I have a prayer problem. Secondly, sometimes when it comes to unanswered prayer, we should think about the fact that I want to suggest to you we have a perception problem, a perception problem. Uh, uh, Unanswered prayer is painful. It is challenging to our faith. It incites doubt. It's discouraging. It feels huge. And and oftentimes it is. I don't want to minimize that at all. 
But I want you to think for just a minute about a hangnail. You get hangnails? I think everybody gets hangnails at some point in time, right? It's that thing next to your, your, your fingernail, and it's that little tag of skin, and it's so annoying, and sometimes they're painful, especially if you eat pizza and it gets a little sauce in there. It really hurts, right? It's annoying, and uh, um, it takes up so much of your time and attention. You have square feet of healthy skin that you're not thinking out about at all, but there's this one-eighth inch of skin that is bothering you so much. Mm. I think the hallways of heaven are going to be filled with shelves of books that contain records of thousands and thousands of answered prayers. We're going to spend eternity learning about the unmerited riches of God's grace and that he heard us when we cried out to him. And there will be aha moments. There will be aha moments in which we come before God and we say, oh, I asked for this thing and, and you didn't give it because, and now I see your plan was so much better than my plan. Your plan was so much better than my plan. I didn't think it at the time, but I see now, I understand now. And there will be moments too, at least in my life, I'm not sure about you, moments in which I praise God for his infinite mercy that he did not give me the boneheaded thing I was praying about. Oh. This passage, though, is not about unanswered prayer. That's not what this passage is about. This passage is about unasked prayer, unspoken prayers, unprayed prayers. Huh. Your children do not have because you do not ask God. Bob Russell says there was a father one day who was standing at his kitchen window looking into his backyard and he saw his four-year-old son sitting around his sandbox and for some reason, somehow, a giant rock had gotten into the sandbox and the four-year-old boy was trying to get it out. It was a heavy. He tried pulling, he tried pushing, he tried lifting, he tried using the edge of the, the sandbox as, to give him leverage to get it out, out of the sandbox. And he finally, the little boy sat down in despair. He couldn't move the, the stone. His father came out, said to him, you having trouble there with that rock? Yes. You tried a lot of things? Yes. Have you used every strength that's available to you to move that rock? Yes. His father said, son, you haven't. You haven't asked me. Haven't asked me. Huh. Prayer is God's appointed means for meeting needs. Now, how do fathers pray? Let's move on and think about that. How do fathers pray? Less time we'll spend here. How do fathers pray? Two things. One, I'm going to borrow Paul's phrase, uh, and I'll say the manner in which fathers pray is with holy hands. We pray with holy hands. Uh, 1 Peter 4, we read 1 Peter 4 last week. Look at what 1 Peter 4, 7 says. The end of all things is near, it says. Therefore, be alert and sob of sober mind. Why? Why should followers of Jesus be alert and of sober mind? So that you, can, you may pray. So that you can pray. Notice the order. This is the way Peter writes about prayer a lot. John Piper has pointed this out. There is a sort of life that fuels prayer. There's a sort of life in which prayer flourishes. It's a sober and alert sort of life. It's a holy hand sort of life. It's a life uh, of, of holiness and it fuels prayer. Now, this is one of the challenges. We often think of it the other way. I pray so that I can live a holier life. No, 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 no. 
uh, here the New Testament says in these passages, we lead holy lives so that we can pray. Hmm. This reminds me of a, a hymn. We don't sing it very much. We haven't sung it in a long time, I don't think, by Isaac Watts called Am I a Soldier of the Cross? Some of you are old enough to know this song, not because you sang it with Isaac Watts, but because we used to sing it more, <laughs> right? Am I a soldier of the cross? Am I a soldier of the cross, a fowler of the lamb? And shall I fear to own his cause or blush to own his name, speak his name? Must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease while others fought to gain the prize and sailed through bloody seas? Are there no foes for me to face? Must I not stem the flood? Is this vile world a friend to grace to help me onto God? That's the question that runs through my mind. Is this vile world a friend to grace to help me onto God? And the answer to that question is, no, it's not. This vile world is no friend to grace to help you onto God. Think about all the obstacles that are around you that push you away from prayer, away from soberness, away from alertness, away from holiness. Netflix does not want you to pray. Google does not want you to pray. Apple does not want you to pray. Nintendo does not want you to pray. Microsoft does not want you to pray. Walt Disney and ESPN and the National Football League do not want you to pray. Facebook definitely does not want you to pray. Twitter doesn't want you to pray. Instagram is not interested in having you turn it off so that you can pray. Harley Davidson might not mind if you pray, as long as you don't set aside your longing for their products and the money you spend on enhancing them. Amazon would rather have you shop than pray. DeWalt doesn't want you to pray. Craftsman doesn't want you to pray. Ford doesn't want you to pray. International doesn't want you to pray. Toyota doesn't want you to pray. Your fantasy football league doesn't want you to pray. The booster club of your kid's soccer team does not want you to pray unless you're praying that you can sell more Gertrude Hawk chocolates. Pornhub does not want you to pray. What's on your list? There's a list, right? You can make your own list. Here's a list that I, I put together. You can make your own list. This doesn't want me to pray. This doesn't, this is not, this cruel world is not, this vile world is not a friend of grace that is helping you onto God. Be sober and alert. Do you know, do you know who does want you to pray? Your children want you to pray. They don't know it. If they're under two, they really don't know it. That's why they keep you up at night. So you're not alert in order to pray. They don't know it. But they want you to pray, and they need you to pray. Men, interceding for your children is worth the effort it takes to turn your eyes from all of those things so that you have the sort of life in which prayer flourishes. Be sober and alert. Lift up holy hands so we can pray. So that's the how um, and the manner. Now let's think about the content. What are we going to pray for Pray for. I have a couple things on a list before I give them to you. Let me suggest to you that you ask your children what you can pray for, for them. That's a good idea. What a novel idea that you would ask them. How can I pray for you? 
You can get a notebook and you write these things down or open a file in your phone uh, of uh, prayer requests, track these things out, make it a regular practice at some point in time. Maybe on the way to church, you can ask every Sunday, what should we pray for? I said that in the first service, my children glared at me. It's not a long enough distance. <laughs> or maybe Monday night after dinner, what, what am I gonna pray for you for this week? Let's have them. Or uh, Matt Chandler plays a game with his family. It's not really a game. They call it high-low. Every night at dinner, when they're together eating, um, tell me about highs for the day and tell me about lows for the day. Uh, pay attention to those lows. They'll tell you what to pray about for. So ask them. Beyond that, let me give you quickly six things. Number one, pray for their salvation. Pray for their salvation. Pray that they would recognize God wants them to be saved and that they would turn and trust in him. Pray, secondly, for their growth. Pray for their growth as followers of Jesus, that they would come to understand what um, uh, the, the scripture says and how to follow Jesus. It's a good way to pray on Saturday night before you come to church on Sunday morning. Pray three, number three on my list, for friendships. Friendships. Ask the parents of teenagers if it's important for them to pray for their friends of their kids, because you all know how important uh, friendships are when you're a teenager. Next on my list, I think it's number four, pray for their temptations, temptations. Pray that God, oh, pray that when they're tempted, they would recognize that God has provided a way out for them and that they would gladly take it. And pray that when they fail, they would cry out to God for mercy and that they would not feel so beaten down by their own sin that they would not turn to the God whose grace is greater than their sin. Does your teenage son know that you're praying about his relationship with his girlfriend and the purity of that relationship? You should, you should talk about that. I, <laughs> if you, unless your teenage son has a job and a place to live other than your basement, I don't know why he needs a girlfriend, but do you talk to them? I, I talk to him and say, I'm praying for your relationship with, um, uh, with your girlfriend. Hmm. Next on my list, pray for their generosity. I think this is number five. Pray for their generosity. Do you want your kid to live a blessed life? Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive. A generous fourth grader is almost a miracle. Pray for their generosity. Pray last here on my list to give to you obedience. Pray for their obedience. And I'm thinking particularly of that command that the Lord Jesus gave us. Go and make disciples of all nations around the world, baptizing them in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Pray that your child would embrace this command of the Lord Jesus. And no matter what vocation they have, that they might uh, uh, give themselves over to this great command that the Lord Jesus has given us. Obedience. John Ashcroft was the uh, attorney general during uh, George Bush's uh, presidency, and he wrote an autobiography, and listen to what he said. Many kids wake up to the smell of coffee brewing or the sound of a rooster crowing. My wake-up call was my father's passionate praying filtering through the house. Sometimes I'd ease downstairs and join him. One knee was usually raised, so I'd slip in underneath shielded by his body as he pleaded for my soul. Oh, I want my kids to say that, to remember that about me. My father prayed. I want your son or daughter to say that about you. Men, let's get to it. 
Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning, and Lord, we are grateful to you for these uh, instructions in your word about the central, essential part of prayer that we have as fathers and as mothers and elders and Sunday school teachers and Bible study leaders. But today, Lord, I pray that you would make us the kind of congregation that is filled with praying men who lift up holy hands without arguing or disputing. Oh, that you would work this in us. Lord, that you would forgive us for our prayerlessness and and not allow our prayerlessness to discourage us from starting again. That you would forgive us and that you would grant that we might be diligent in this work that you have called us to. You have entrusted our sons and daughters to us and make us faithful in pleading to you for them. Oh, help us, help us. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen.